Welcome back to the Bible Readers Podcast. In this podcast, I'll be sitting down with Dr. Matthew Sakonikis to discuss his thoughts on the early world era. Dr. Sakonikis teaches theology at Christendom College, where he teaches fundamentals of Catholic doctrine, Old and New Testament, apologetics, and more. Dr. Sakonikis holds a bachelor's degree from Christendom College, a licentiate in sacred theology from the Pontifical John Paul II Institute, and a doctorate in sacred theology from the Pontifical University of the Lateran. We recently sat down and had a wonderful conversation about what these first chapters of the Bible have to teach us, and I really think you'll enjoy it. As always, if you enjoy the Bible Readers Podcast, please rate us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And I want to thank Dr. Sakonikas for coming on the show. All right, well, Dr. Sakonikas, welcome to the Bible Readers Podcast. We're really happy to join you. <laughs> uh, if you want to give, I love the background, if you want to give a, a quick introduction to your work and what you do. So yes, I'm at Christendom College and... Uh, so I'm really a generalist as a theologian. I'm a generalist, so I'm not a biblical scholar, hmm. but because I have to do a lot of work, um, in so many scriptural areas and because I'm a generalist and because I have to teach in so many different areas, hmm. I'm very blessed with, uh, getting the chance to synthesize a lot more things than other people get a chance to synthesize. Hmm. So, so that's a little background, but yes, we, we have a lot of core courses in our, uh, undergraduate liberal arts degree. And yeah. so they have to take at least six. Um, I'm sorry. So there are six courses that they have to take in the theology core that's mandatory. And so, uh, I've had to teach in all six of those courses in addition to our, um, our electives. Yeah. And so it gives me a chance to see a lot more and a, a, a lot bigger, a lot more breadth, yeah. Uh, then a lot of other people get a chance to see and I get paid to study and be able to do that. So it's kind of hard to complain. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Are, <laughs> is there any particular thing you're focused on right now? Any research you're doing that's specific to your work now? So specifically, my doctorate's in the area of what we would call Christian anthropology and moral theology mm. from the John Paul II Institute in Rome, where I did my my degree. And so uh, my main interest right now is just taking uh, a look again, because I'm a generalist, taking a look at synthesizing a lot of things. Hmm. And so uh, American culture is very interesting to me. And so I've been taking a good hard look at uh, American culture's embrace of natural moral law hmm. has fallen apart. And even though our Declaration of Independence is based on natural moral law and its authority and claims, why is it it's so hard to bring that back into discussion in American culture? Hmm. And so I've been looking at a project in which I'm, I'm trying to see what's preventing people from embracing it. And it seems clear to me that the real difficulty is the embrace of divine law because so many people misinterpret the first 11 chapters of Genesis. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a good segue because that's, that's what we're going to talk about today. Like the, this, this first era of salvation history and really throughout this podcast, we're going to be going through all 12 uh, in subsequent order. And this will, this will be one of the last episodes we do on Genesis one through 11. And really like all that it's been so far has been, not, it's not just my insight. I've gathered a lot of this, this stuff and insight from, from others, but it is my commentary. And so I wanted to bring in, 
a voice that was other than mine to give that their, your own uh, insight into the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Um, but just real quick, like before, before we, we get into that specifically, just generally, what do you have any advice for people who are like either new to studying the scriptures or they're reopening them for the first time and they, maybe they're confused or like, I don't really know where to begin. What might you tell somebody who is who's just hopping into it? Well, this is the whole crazy thing. And that is we read scripture through the filter we bring hmm. into our reading. And so the great difficulty is the greatest barrier to reading scripture is the person reading it. Hmm. So I would always say the greatest barrier to reading scripture is me hmm. <laughs> because I approach it with a 21st century mindset and right. filter that's in place from being a product of 12 years of public school education and a couple years of uh, state college education before I finished an undergraduate with a Catholic education. Right. And so I, I, I was always bringing to, to scripture, the filter of my own personal life and education. And, and that filter wasn't really the, the proper filter of which the original authors wanted me to hear the message. In other words, my mindset was so foreign to the original mindset that gave us chapters one to 11 of Genesis yeah. that I was doing more in eisegesis. I was reading all of my ideology into Genesis mm -hmm. instead of doing an exegesis. And that's drawing out mm -hmm. a, a, that's an entering into the mind of the human author to enter into the mind of the divine author, which means I've really got to get the context of that human author into my head to mm. get at what he's after. Mm. And so the biggest mistake everyone makes, which is again, why I was saying my project is, all right, why are people not embracing natural moral law? Well, the divine law is in the way because they don't know how to understand the divine law. And so they throw out the divine law and with it, they throw out eternal law, the very God who gives revelation. Mm. And so we can't have a synthesis in our culture anymore. Mm. Um, because we have so misrepresented all the various laws, eternal, divine, natural, civil, we can't synthesize them because we think we understood the Bible when in fact we never did. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's why I like talking on the, this topic. Yeah, I always like to use with my students like the analogy of a well of like when we're coming to the scriptures, we're coming to the well and what we want to know is what, what's at the bottom. And the only way for us to do that is to draw out. And that's what exactly what exegesis is. And the, if we want to know what's at the bottom of the well, if we dump all this stuff from the top into the well, we never actually <laughs> know what it is. So that's uh, great. Yeah. <laughs> all we're finding is what we threw into it. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so it ends up being more of just like a reflection of our own biases and prejudices and uh, preconceived notions. And it doesn't actually give us what the author wants to wants to give us. So getting ourselves into the mindset of, of this, this uh, ancient Near Eastern context can be really tricky. Um, yeah. But I was I was taking a look and I'll, I'm going to definitely going to have this uh, article that you sent me uh, posted up uh, on the Bible readers podcast.com our website. Uh, this article that you wrote uh, Sinai as an interpretive key to Genesis. Uh, entering the cult to enter the mind of the author. And in that, you said this it really struck me as I was reading through this. You said, as, as children, many of us are catechized that Genesis happened 
before Exodus. And so readers think of the whole work of Genesis as written or finalized before the book of Exodus. We thereby are conditioned to miss everything Genesis wants to disclose in terms of the Exodus experience, idioms, and cult. So it seems like to me that you're saying that Genesis is this, this kind of interpretive key to unlocking the Exodus and, and maybe the whole Torah then coming after it. Is that, am I reading that correctly? Well, yeah, you, you, you just did, a, you did an inversion just because okay. we're thinking two books at the same time. So definitely I'd be saying Exodus on top of Mount Sinai, particularly uh, chapters 19 to 24, understanding mm. what's happening there is the whole key to grasping what happened in Genesis chapters yeah. one to three. And then I, the reason is um, not because Genesis hadn't been written in some way before Moses' time. Hmm. Of course, there were lots of legends that lots of groups of people um, and the various tribes might have held amongst living amongst the Mesopotamians, amongst the Egyptians mm -hmm. of origins of man. And so what's unique is Moses didn't write all those legends that came before his time. Hmm. That was traditions of men. But Moses did receive on top of Mount Sinai an absolute participation in the divine nature that he was somehow in the presence of God while standing on earth, a fullness, a substantial, real, true, and substantial presence of God hmm. in the Holy of Holies where heaven was touching earth and had infused into him all sorts of knowledge and understanding. And so God was reforming all, God was using all that was in Moses that came from an Egyptian culture and reforming it in this infusion of knowledge. He was working with all the symbolic language of Egypt that was inside Moses's head and all the time he'd spent living with his father-in-law on the plains of, of, of Midian or, or, or in Midian uh, with Jethro. And, and in this infusion, God's recapitulating, giving a correct form to all of those prior legends. And so what Moses is experiencing on Mount Sinai is enabling him to reform all of the legends that came before him and, oh. and give us a finalized version of Genesis. Now, obviously there's gonna be lots of scholars who would be flipping out right now with me saying that. Um, and so they'd be saying, you know, that is just absolutely, you know, you're particularly uh, I'm, anyway, there'd be a lot of scholars, but that would be an extreme minority position that I just stated uh -huh. in today's culture. But that that this was at least a standard um, be, before we had the schools in Germany of the 19th century really trying to re-put together the transmission uh, in stages uh, to the point of Israel forming itself as a nation. If, if that, it's so very difficult to talk. Huh. Um, because yeah. of what developed with what became Stan with the Wellhausen right. um, hypothesis. Right. The JDP. But I, yeah, JDP. And so what I'm trying to say is, look, clearly a religious uh, practice was established around a tabernacle. Yeah. And so working from just common sense that some kind of cult was established and this cult clearly comes from Moses. And so this cult, this way of worship that Moses established, that liturgy 
itself retells something. Whenever you practice that liturgy that the Israelites were practicing and why David wanted to build a temple and why we even had Solomon's temple and when, why there was a divided kingdom and why some people still wanted to set up other shrines in the, in the northern kingdom and, and maintain the temple in the south. The only reasonable explanation is something really big happened in the deliverance from Egypt that affected liturgical practices that became monotheistic. Hmm. And what I'm simply trying to argue is if you will enter that liturgy and how people would have understood that liturgy of the tabernacle, then that's the context by which we would understand Moses, who we can at least say is a substantial author hmm. of the, the books we know as the Torah, the five books of Moses. And hmm. so in some way, since Genesis, no one's going to argue with me that Genesis came after the time of Moses. No one's going to argue with me that the final form right. came after the time of Moses. So we can at least say it's after the time of Moses, and I'm claiming Moses is truly and should still be understood as substantial author right. of the Torah, that Moses gave, when we're reading Genesis, we're looking at a form that Moses gave the final form to all those legends that preceded him. And that's what you're looking at. You're looking at how he has, he has, he's, he's got to tap into something common everyone can latch on to, a common language. And that common language with the people he took out of Egypt were the legends out of Mesopotamia and out of Egypt. Mm. And so he's reforming all of that and giving a, a, a final form, a mosaic form, to the origins of man which is actually correcting all of the polytheism of the Mesopotamians, the Akkadians, the Canaanites, and the Egyptians, all in one blow in chapters uh, 1 through 11 of Genesis. And simultaneously, he is making implied references to the journey from Exodus through Deuteronomy he is making references to things they contextually experienced at Mount Sinai and in Numbers 25 on the plains of Baal at Peor. All of these things are coming through Genesis itself because it's his context, which is also the context of the people who witnessed all the things that happened at the tabernacle. And now when we start reading Genesis in light of, there's references being, there's a, what scholars will call, what your biblical scholars, and I'm not biblical scholar, I'm simply a, a theologian who's a generalist. Again, I synthesize a lot because I've had to teach in a lot of different areas. And so um, what we're looking at in a lot of ways really appears to be um, only properly understood when we put it in the context of Moses' audience was an audience that was familiar with the tabernacle and all the cult, all the liturgies mm. associated with it. And so to try reading what's happening with Adam and Eve outside of a context of what happens in liturgies, mm. to try to read uh, chapter four, the sons of Cain, and chapter five, the sons of yeah. Adam and Seth, outside of a framework of covenants, then you're not going to understand chapter six and the flood and who the sons of God really are. And, and how language changes and context changes and people begin to read Sons of God in different historical contexts without recognizing you've got to first watch for what was what was the intention of the author in the bigger picture. Huh. 
That's fascinating. So like, as you're talking about that, I'm thinking like Exodus 19 is one of those passages to me that's often overlooked. People start in 20, Exodus 20, because that's 10 commandments. So that's where they start. But the yeah, that, big error. Right. And that statement in Exodus 19 of Israel, you are my firstborn son, is something that immediately when I'm reading that, I'm thinking about Adam. I'm thinking about Seth. Yeah. I'm, thinking, I'm thinking all those things. And, and what you're saying is, that is exactly what the author wants you to do. Yes, that's the intertextuality. That's the phrase the scholars will use. That's the intertextuality uh, between the text because yes, there's an influence of the legends before Moses on how people understand religion, but that's the very religion God wants Moses to reform. So he's not starting from scratch. (laughs) He's reforming the abuses that man has let in through his sinfulness. Huh. And so Moses is giving the proper way to understand what God's mind was, because God's mind has become so distorted in the religious practices of sinful men. Hmm. So he's got to do a lot to re- retell in short form the history of mankind. Huh. And and Moses is growing up in Egyptian courts. They would have had they would have absolute knowledge of of the Mesopotamian cultures and and the trade and economics and cultural respects of the other cultures they're doing business with. Hmm. Um, so it's not like, so in other words, you have to recognize that Moses is going to understand a lot of what he's doing symbolically as well. Hmm. And, and, and being told in a way that would have been embraced by that culture, that, that, that history was not something to be taken literal as we understand literal. Right. But it is the authentic history that God is trying to communicate. It's a theological history. It's a sacred history. Hmm. And so we've got to get into the patterns and symbols like what you brought up in Exodus 19, but I'll pause there, but I, I would like to go back to what you just mentioned of Exodus 19. Yeah. Oh, so I, and, and maybe this will, this, this question will get us into that with, uh, so how then is the Genesis one through 11 text? How is it unfolding this, uh, this liturgy given at Mount Sinai? How, how does it explain or how does it like take, all of what Moses has received from his Egyptian culture and all these ancient Mesopotamian pagan religions and reform them into a, uh, into a monotheistic Yahwistic religion. Right. Well, I'd say Exodus 19 is the key. Okay. So yeah, there we go. Yeah. Exodus 19 is the key. Um, And so what's very interesting is particularly familiarity uh, with Egyptian religious practices of shrines. Hmm. And so you are forbidden to enter a shrine or, or a place where someone's, uh, maybe the burial place and shrine of someone who was important or a family ancestor. There's curses written on the outside of the shrine before you enter. Whatever boundary you're entering, there's a curse warning you not to enter the area unprepared. I'm thinking about this in common, right? I'm thinking about like the pyramids and all the stories you get from that. That's right. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) So you are, you are forbidden. So you are particularly forbidden if you have not bathed Hmm. and, or if you've had sexual relations with a woman. Hmm. So go right back to Exodus chapter 19. What's the first thing to do before you're going to be allowed to cross before you're allowed to go up the mountain. The first thing you're supposed to do is bathe. So then three Wash. days. Yeah. Say it again. 
And then the three days of abstinence beforehand. Yeah. So there's bathing, abstinence, um, and, and, and sacrificial preparation. Yeah. And so you'll notice um, God tells Moses put a border around the mountain because once the cloud of heaven touches the mountain, the mountain's consecrated, it's a shrine. Yeah. And he says, erect a border at the base of the mountain. And he warns people, he warns people, don't cross it, don't even touch it. Right. Well, those are the same words given to Eve when yeah. it comes to Genesis chapter, chapter three. She says, you know, this is where people will say, you know, um, you know, maybe maybe Adam went too far in warning Eve not to touch the tree. Right. And no, no, actually, Eve's words are pointing to what God pointed to in Exodus chapter 19. Uh, in other words, she's simply relating that somehow the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is a barrier border veil that man has not yet been invited to pass through. Hmm. It's the holy of holies. So they're in a holy place, but they're not yet participating in the fullness of God's divine nature. They've been baptized in a sense and made holy, but they haven't entered into holy communion. Hmm. And so that very Exodus 19 about the border and death in Exodus chapter 19 is the same warning in chapter three. There's hmm. a tree there. Don't, don't cross it. Don't touch it. Huh. It's a border. So this isn't just, you know, Matthew Sacanegas' opinion. Right. This is doctors of the church telling us how to properly read from Ephraim the Syrian, Gregory Nazianzen. All of them are pointing to this intertextuality between, mm -hmm. you know, chapter 20, I'm sorry, chapter 19 of Genesis and, and chapter 3 of Genesis. So how do you think that? Exodus, Exodus 19, Genesis 3. Yeah. So how do you think that it makes or affects our interpretation of what that first sin is? Huh, that's a good question. I, I think a lot of it is. Uh, instead of seeing what God's discussing uh, or what God is doing. So what we've fallen into particularly, which, which is the beginning of the downfall of divine law, the beginning of the divine, the downfall of humanity um, since the enlightenment, rejecting revelation. We don't want revelation involved anymore when it comes to how we make laws. Hmm. I would say the main difficulty people have always had with, the interpretation of what's happening in Genesis three is God seems arbitrary. Right. Yeah. And what this does is it reminds us, it's not an arbitrary law that God just pulled out of thin air as something to test our obedience. Yeah. It has something to do with how does man enter God? And the answer is since God's will is unchanging, then because God's will is all good and love and wants to fulfill us, that it's man's will that must give itself to God's will so that he can live off of God's will. Hmm. In other words, it's addressing the much bigger context, it's addressing the context that's outside of the opening of Genesis. And that is mankind always believed in God, the eternal one. Hmm. Before a word was written by Moses, it's already clear that there's God, the eternal. And that means by definition, God, the eternal has no beginning. And so if God is going to bring a being into existence, then that being has a beginning and mm -hmm. is by definition 
totally separated from God because God's without beginning. The creature has a beginning. Therefore, there's a serious lacking in likeness between the two. Hmm. But God has given man his image, and man now has the powers of knowledge and love. Hmm. And so God is going to overcome that distance between him and man through knowledge and love. Hmm. And so what it's addressing is the question, because you notice it's, it's about Genesis. It's about births and beginnings. Hmm. So how does God bring someone who has a beginning into that which is eternal and had no beginning? And that is actually what Genesis chapters one through three are implicitly all about. Hmm. How does man, how does God bring time into eternity? And, and what is the seventh day of rest all about? Because it's really about entering God's rest, which is eternity. So how do you bring a creature who's not, by definition, God, and then bring him to share and participate, as St. Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, God always wanted to make us partakers in the divine nature. Huh. So by making us, we're not divine. By the very fact, so in other words, it's right. that whole... Right. Go ahead. No, no, I'm, no, I'm following this. I'm, I'm really fascinated. Huh. So in other words, what we're saying is, you know, we, you always have the, the, the person who wants to make fun of religion. Um, you, you say that God's all powerful. Yeah, God, God's all powerful. Okay, well, can God make a square circle? Right. No, because that's nonsense. Right. And God doesn't do nonsense. God only does real things. Okay, well, if God's all powerful, can he make something so big not even he can lift it? Same question. Um, that's nonsense because God holds all things in existence. Okay. But here's one that should really stun people, and it's not easy to answer. Can God make us equal to himself in all things by creating us? I mean, it's another, that's another implicit, like, if he's creating something and bringing it into be in bringing it into being, then it was not eternal and therefore wasn't God. So it's still nonsense. That's right. So you're automatically not God by being brought by being Genesis right into being. So God is the one who has being in Himself, and we are the one who has being from another. Yeah. And so what we're witnessing is. But God always wanted to make us like himself because we're not only made in his image, but we're made in his image and likeness. likeness. Yeah. So God always intended to increase the likeness. And so he gave us knowledge and freedom by which we begin to consolidate eternity in us by coming to true knowledge and true surrender of ourselves to God. And that's what the whole meaning of the trees of the knowledge of good and evil are all about, that we can't just enter into participation in God without first being prepared and developed through our freedom. Mm. Mm. And so I think by looking at it and reading it in the way that I'm suggesting here, we move away from the legalistic approaches from the nominalistic in which God's just being arbitrary and God could have done it any way he wanted. No, he can't. Mm. 
in making us, we're automatically different from God, but in making us in his image, he's given us the power through knowledge and love to develop in him endlessly and remain distinct from him. All the while we become more like him, we become more free and more distinct, and we become more truly the persons who are sons of God. And the whole point of Genesis is bringing us into being sons of God. We can't be sons of God by natural birth, by man's power to take and consume, mm. as at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We have to receive God and accept God and give ourselves to God in the mystery of love. Mm. And Genesis chapters 1 to, 1 to 11, if you read them carefully, are three movements into becoming sons of God. You see the movement from Seth to Noah, mm -hmm. particularly. Yeah. And then from Noah um, to Terah, I guess would be the best way to say it. The father of Abraham. Have our, you have a pattern of three sons, three sons of Adam that are named, three sons of Noah that are named, three sons of Terah that are named. And that of that, Third set of three sons is how I should have better said it. That third set of three sons, it's Abraham to whom the promise is given that what he began in Adam was going to be accomplished. From Adam to Noah, Noah the 10th generation, from Noah uh, to, to Terah, if I have that right, 10 generations. So Terah is the father of Abraham. That's right, okay. The whole movement, I apologize, the whole movement from Genesis chapter 1 to the very last verse of Genesis chapter 11 is to bring us to Abraham, who becomes a new Adam for us. He becomes a new Adam who is going to finish what God didn't finish in the first Adam, and that is bringing us into the fullness of the sonship. We were never meant to just be creatures. The creature was meant to become a son of God, but this only happens through God and God's natural son. Uh, so all of those things are ultimately looking forward to Christ. They find Absolutely, in every way, in every single way. Right. It's going to be knowledge of the Son. In other words, God makes a creature capable of knowledge and love, but it's knowledge of the Son that we need visibly hmm. that enables us to grasp the truest of religion, which is how to give our lives to God because from all eternity, the father gives his life to the son and the son gives his life to the father in the mystery of the Holy Spirit. Mm. And if we're going to become like God, we've got to do what God does. And that is we've got to learn to give ourselves to God because that's what God does from all eternity. Mm. Okay, so this is all super fascinating. I we Last time we spoke, we talked about these genealogies and that's the stuff that really I find super interesting because it's the easiest stuff for people to skip. Uh, and people look at this like it's just a long list of pronounce. Why is this there? And what I like to say is like whenever whenever I hit weird things in the Bible, especially weird things that the author has dedicated a significant like word count to, it's a good time right. to pause and ask like why? Why is he? Why is this there? Um, and I know you've got a lot of really fascinating stuff about the genealogies, especially with Seth and Cain. But uh, I'd love to hear if you have. Uh, the stuff on on the genealogy in, in Genesis 10 as well, 
what are some things that we find there that don't uh, that might people who are uninitiated might miss when it comes to genealogy? Are you talking particularly just Genesis 10 in terms of the genealogies? Or Well, I, I think we could start with um, Seth and Cain in, um, or uh, yeah, Seth and Cain in Genesis 4 and 5, and then and then maybe as well Genesis chapter 10. But it may definitely okay. start with 4 and 5. Well, we're leading up to in Genesis uh, 4 and 5 uh, is a very ancient way of moving through history, through names, and the meaning of names. And so we're, we're, getting, we're getting a listing of, of two ways of man existing. And one is the way of existing knowing God. And one is the way of existing um, cut off from God. Um, avoiding God, really. And so there's this kind of shame that Cain experiences of an Umberto Casuto, a great uh, scripture scholar, linguist. He was a polymath. He, he knew he was a, a doctor in many subjects and he used to teach at Hebrew University. And he was writing in the, particularly in the 30s through 50s or so. And he has a lot of commentaries on, on uh, reading scripture on Genesis, on the Hebrew language itself, as, as he was a native speaker of it. Right. And um, he goes through a lot of, of what's really happening with Cain and the mark that's upon Cain and how Cain's a wanderer and, and, and uh, what, it means, what it means for him to be a wanderer is someone who is always, who's forbidden to ever rest. Rest is forbidden, Cain. Ah. And, and he's always running away from God. And he can't face God and can't call on God's name um, for this kind of shunning that's occurred of punishment for the sin. And um, so there's this line of a family coming from Cain that has grown up totally materialistically without authentic spiritual knowledge, without real knowledge of God, because they don't call the name of, of, of the Lord. They don't know God in a familiar way. Uh -huh. God is only distant and to be avoided. And so it's all about material development of mankind without spiritual development of mankind. Mm. And then you have, and that's more a, a summary, a very vast um, summary of someone way more um, specific in, in his Hebrew language, in the movements that are occurring, uh, way more scholarly. I'm just kind of summarizing it real quickly. Sure. And then you have Seth, who still calls through Adam's knowledge of the Lord, he still calls on the Lord by name. And so we see in his son, Enosh, we see that Enosh is somehow a synonym for Adam. And so you have kind of a new beginning with the son of Seth and that Adam and Eve, you know, they're kind of disheartened after the, the death and loss of Cain and Abel. And they're disheartened and God seems distant even though they're comforted with Seth. But now that they have a grandchild, they call in the name of the Lord again. And again, that's summarizing uh. Umberto Casuto. And so what you see developing in the line of Seth uh, is, again, the line of the firstborn, the idea of those who inherit the knowledge of God. So those who are more developed spiritually than they are materially. Uh, and it leads to Enoch who walks with God. 
he leaves the Enoch who truly walks with God and is taken up by God. But but what's so interesting is there's there's actual parallels between the sons of Cain and the sons of Seth. Even their names look similar. They're very similar, and it's purposeful. Yeah. And and there's numbers that are being associated in the movement um, from Adam through Cain to the showing of man really distant from God, becoming polygamous, becoming and becoming polygamous, becoming murderous. Right. And so that story is being told through the sons that he has, that Lamech becoming polygamous, that Lamech has through his two wives. And if you pay attention to their names and what they make, yeah, they're serving as the connecting piece for Genesis chapter six, because Genesis chapter five is about the sons of Seth who are calling on God's name that makes them sons of God. They have a family relationship with God. And so what's being told between these two lines are those who are only concerned with the body and materiality. And these are the sons of Cain who reach a fullness of evil in Lamech, who then is compared with a Lamech in chapter five. So the chapter four Lamech of Cain is compared with the chapter five Lamech of Seth's descendants. Right. And right. you have to look at Lamech's sons, Noah, being just opposed with the Lamech who took two wives, and he has the two sons from his first wife, Ada, and then he has a son and a daughter from his second wife, Zillah. And what you're seeing in the story of the sons and the daughter of of chapter four, the sons of Cain, what you're seeing with them is a an allegory hmm. in which we're being told you see those who are the partiers, um, those who have what can be sacrificed at parties where there's lots of music, where people worship, uh, basically have orgies. Right, because Tubal Cain is the forger of instruments of bronze and iron. Um, and that's the other wise. So, right. And then Jubal. So forges, yeah. Jubal. So you have the people who have herds, which are sacrificed right. to the satyrs. Because yeah. this is all a reference actually to the Viticus, to, to, the, to what's forbidden in Leviticus of going outside the camp and doing sacrifices while you're having parties with the music. Uh. Um, and then what you're doing is you're having these orgies. Um, so you're breaking all the commandments because you no longer appreciate and respect marriage and adultery leads to murder. Right. And so what you see is through Cain's line is the acceptance of adultery, polygamy, and all that's associated and murder, the weapons of war, of bronze and iron. And then you see that line of chapter four being juxtaposed with chapter five, the line of Seth, and the line of Seth are those who call on God's name and we know that through flash forward to the New Testament, St. Peter says on the ark, there were only eight people, Noah and his wife, mm-hmm. the three sons of Noah and their wives. That's eight people. Yeah. They were monogamous. Right. Monotheism and monogamy go hand in hand. Uh. But those who don't know God are in a sense polytheists 
They're doing false religion. They're adulterous. And because they're adulterous, they're murderous, shown mm. by the weapons of war. And this is all an allegory and, that Moses is telling to the people of Israel who are walking away from Egyptian cult uh, involves uh, the Pharaoh worship. Right. The and, Pharaoh worship. Right. Yeah. And they're walking away from that wow. polygamy, and he's trying to bring them to. Well, what I would say is this. So since he's telling a story and he's he's consolidating the former legends into a proper understa theological understanding of history, he's giving sacred theological history. So what he's actually also doing, it seems, is he's making an allusion to what happened in Numbers chapter 25. And the plains of Peor. That's right. Because Baal of Peor, because... What he's saying is, we got chapter four, the lines of Cain, which are the sons of men. Line, uh, chapter five, uh, the line of Seth, which are the sons of God. And chapter six opens up with, the sons of God saw how beautiful the daughters of man were and took as many as they wanted to themselves. And what he's saying is, Seth's line is now taking on the ways of, of Cain's line. And they're doing it because of the one woman named at the end of Cain's line through Lamech. Remember, Lamech had two wives. Yeah. And of the first wife, he had two sons. And of the second wife, he has a son who makes weapons of war. And then Naamah, the name Naamah, and taking this from the Jerome Biblical Commentary, basically yeah. means graceful. In other words, you see a woman that's graceful, you're like, oh, she's beautiful. So what's chapter six open up with? The sons of God saw how beautiful the sons of man were and took as many as they wanted. And God says, I'm going to have to destroy the world because now they're all just trying to become men of renown. Right. Men of the name, which is almost a reference to all the Homeric epics of people stealing people's wives and going to war and killing each other like we have in the Trojan War and oh. all of these kinds of things. But what Moses is doing is saying, notice how the sons of God and now you, Israel, are the firstborn son of God. Notice how you're willing to become adulterous. And you see beautiful women like you did on Numbers chapter 25 on the plains of Baal at, uh, at Peor. And so they get you to enter in, they get you to join their family for sacrifice before eating. You sacrifice to their God so that you can sleep with their women. And so you become idolatrous in order to become adulterous. Huh. And then God has to correct you. And so you see that in Numbers 25, God wipes out the plague like a flood, 24,000 people of Israel for the sin in which the sons of the sons of God started trying to take the daughters of men, represented by those outside of the covenant in Numbers 25, and then a flood of some kind, like a plague comes. And so what he's actually making a reference to is don't keep repeating the same sin like prehistory that you've already done. Uh. And so you're seeing that whole journey in some ways being referenced. In Genesis chapter 3, you're getting all sorts of references to what happened in the Exodus. And already in Genesis um, 4 through 10, even up, up to Noah getting out of the boat, you're being warned again, don't mess up like you did on the plains of, of, of Peor. With the Midianites, yeah. and then you're you're falling back almost into where 
um, you're seeing how people try to overthrow rightful kings by the sin of, of Ham looking upon his mother's nakedness, which is a reference to trying to steal, it's a very gross reference, right. to trying to steal kingship away from a rightful king. So yeah, and that's and that's so one of the things we've talked about on the podcast, and I talk about my students is is that the well, so first we we talk about the the mixing of the lineages in at the beginning of Genesis chapter six, and that the wickedness yeah. begins to spread because the line of Cain is infecting the line of Seth, and and then God sends the flood, and then there's that that chiasm that that centers on God's remembering of Noah, that he's drawing Noah back to himself. And then right. you have after this kind of decreation of the, of the flood, this recreation in which another garden is planted. But now we have the problem of original sin that has not been solved. And, uh, and then the, the incestual sin of, of ham, uh, kind right. of like rebringing about this, like the curse isn't fixed. It's it's not done yet. We haven't we haven't solved this problem. Uh, so that I I never thought about it though as like a a reference to uh, kingship, the stealing of the rightful king, like the, through humiliation, taking away authority. Is that is that kind of how you're reading the sin of Ham? A little bit. Well, the sin okay. of Ham, you see, in a sense, the intertextuality with David's son is an absolute oh. who oh. takes one. of the concubines of of David and in sleeping with her publicly is saying that I take my father's authority huh. and so Ham seems to be trying to overthrow Shem as um, you'll find this particularly discussed by Scott Hahn okay. some of his stuff on Genesis um, and so I think what you I think a little bit of what's being what's being shown there is again the attempt to overthrow uh, God's firstborn and anointed one, uh, in a sense. And uh, so since since the descendants of Ham are Canaan, and they're the ones who are still trying to overthrow the descendants of Shem, you see this continuation in the sons of either what was good in the father or what was bad in the father. Right. And so it's continuing. And that's why, you know, yes, Adam is, according to Luke's gospel, the, the lowercase son Mm -hmm. because Adam can't call anyone else father. So he refers to him as son of God in terms of being a creature. Um, and so you see this firstborn son, Adam being like a firstborn son, Israel being a firstborn son. But really what you're seeing is the continuation of Adam and that Adam is still trying to be realized and he's not realized <coughs> until Jesus, who St. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 calls the last Adam. And I think there might be in a sense because he's called the last Adam. He's not called the new Adam in Genesis. And in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 45, he's called the last Adam. He's mm -hmm. not called new Adam. He's not called second Adam. Because in a sense, and, and this is very speculative on my part. I'm not claiming and anything I say. Obviously, people should use whatever they believe and keep what they there's there's so many layers upon layers just. Um, you know, use what's best, whatever layer you have, use what's best for interpretation. But, but clearly Noah is a, is a, is a second Adam, you know, creation started again with right. Noah after, right? And there's and so then, many parallels, like the same, yeah, same kind of command. And David is, is another Adam figure. Right. And, 
and, and Moses is another Adam figure. And so all this line of Adams culminates until finally Adam is realized and the only one who can bring man from eternity into time oh. is when the natural son who is eternal mm. takes a body, it becomes time. Now time and eternity are united in the last Adam, Jesus, the incarnation. And now all mankind through Jesus has access to the permanence of abiding in eternity, abiding in God. Mm. So sonship is now realized in the union of heaven and earth. And that's Jesus, the last Adam, the last temple, the last covenant. In other words, ultimate. He's ultimate in all things. He's head oh. of all things. He's head from eternity as God, the creator, as the logos, and, and taking the, a body and resurrecting from the dead. He's head of humanity. So he is head of all things, firstborn, prototokos. Huh. This is one of the things that I love about studying scriptures. And I've been doing it for not, not nearly as long as you have, but I've been doing it now for a substantial enough amount of time that like I've, I have really good working knowledge of it. And I still come back to it over and over again, it, amazed because of so much of the intertextuality of every time I get to know something later on in scripture more, what I read in the first chapters of Genesis becomes more opened. And when I'm like, I'm just constantly pulling things from other parts of scripture that help me understand more what's going on in other places. I find it incredibly fascinating. It's one of those things that like, I don't think I'm ever going to be able to stop studying it because every time I do, I find another thing where I'm like, Oh my goodness, I didn't see this before. And it's the 18th time I've read it. But I'm still finding other nuggets. You were talking about the well, drawing right. from the well. But the yeah. well is infinitely deep. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And it, it's divine. So, like, by definition, it has to be. So, like, we're... Who's we're, the one? <laughs> you know, the, the tradition of, of, of our church fathers in which, you know, the more I read the scriptures and I'm converted, the more I can read the scriptures again and get more out of them mm -hmm. and the more converted i hope i become in reading it which enables to go back and and read them <laughs> rightly more rightly than last time but i still haven't read them rightly i'm still right. trying to get to and that's that's the that's the one thing where i always want to say to people look i'm giving a perspective that's helpful but that doesn't mean there's tons and tons of layers of other perspectives that are just as helpful right and should not be thrown out and should not be discounted because they all work as man. In other words, scripture was meant to be read by humanity, not just me by myself imposing on everyone else how to read it. Hmm. And so that's where we have to recognize, look, there's all sorts of layers and people are reading it all at all sorts of levels, layers, right? Um, uh, immaturity and maturity. So there's something in there for everybody. Yeah, I, I, I love that. So I, I man, so fascinating. So as we get to the end of this early world era, I tend to see uh, Genesis 1 through 11 as kind of ending in tragedy. That like this family that God has set up in the garden in, in his temple has now been utterly splintered and, and fractured. And so as we enter into... Genesis chapter 12 and the introduction of Abraham and less of these like eon long stories, these like family stories that are, are small. It's kind of this question of like, how will, how will the 
problems that began in Genesis 1 through 11 be solved. And, and it's given in, in, uh, in the promise given to Abraham. But Genesis 11 ends with humanity's language split, uh, change and scattered upon the earth. I, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because it's so interesting what we find, right? So, you know, obviously after the sin of Noah, God cleanses the world, but as soon as he cleanses it and they get off the boat, sin, the cycle of sin restarts. Right. And, and where do we find Abram in chapter 12? He's a wanderer. Uh, so something's not right. Yeah. Just <laughs> like Enoch. Yeah. And so you see God working, just like God had to take Israel out of Egypt, God had to take Abram, who's in the line of the sons of God, he had to take Abram out of being an Amorite, because he's he's living in an Amorite uh, culture. Uh, <clears throat> and so that's part of the story of finding, you know, now as we enter into more, uh, after the prehistory, we end more, cl a lot closer into into um, a less symbolic history. Right. We now enter into finding a man who, who, who as the forefather of the Israelites who have to be taken out of Egyptian culture, we're meeting uh, a guy who has to be taken out of Amorite culture first. Uh, because mankind is all that. Amorite. Abraham is a wanderer, just Amorite. like It's fascinating. So, yeah. huh. So the, it, it, it Genesis is really like set up this um, this kind of like uh, this motif of the wanderer. And I'm trying to think like where else we can see this in scripture, like in the exile as they're like traveling from from Israel to, to Babylon or being scattered about by the Assyrians, things like that. Like these motifs of wandering, these this like lack of belonging as being a reference to Genesis chapter four. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. That, that God never abandons sinful man huh. because God's not a legalist. He, he was never out to, he was only ever out to make us like himself. And mm. the father's not going to give up on his son. The son's immature, but he knows, he knows humanity's got a long distant future to go and he's still going to work things out as man progresses, moving, moving on. Gen, remember Genesis generation by generation by generation Right. God is genesising us, genesising us huh. um, into a plan that's only accomplished the more we fulfill, be fruitful and multiply. The more the world develops, the more humanity covers the world, the more humanity covers the earth, the more God can bring the plan to where he wanted it. And that's why that's why the theme of recapitulation is so important. Huh. Recapitulation, which is the very theme of, of Ephesians chapter one, verse 10. Hmm how Christ recapitulates all that came before him. Hmm. Well, Noah recapitulates Adam and then Abraham recapitulates Adam and Noah. And then Moses recapitulates all before him and David recapitulates all before him. And finally Christ recapitulates it all. Huh. And so In, um, whenever we talk about the new Adam, my mind always goes to Romans chapter five. But not yeah. that verse in well, that, yeah. First Corinthians that you talked about of like the yeah. last, the last Adam. It was like each of these people represents a new head of the human race. Yeah. And that yeah. ends with Christ as the last one. 
Yeah, because there can't be any greater covenant than than God become man. There's mm. nothing greater can happen. And so there can be no further Adams. Jesus is the last. Mm. And so he takes everything that came before him into himself. Mm. But he takes, as God, he, he takes all of humanity into himself as the incarnate son of God, Jesus Christ. Wow. And, it's really fascinating. Yeah. Man. Okay. Well, I think, I think that's a great place to, to end as like right. that's <laughs> ending with it all, it all ends with Christ. I think that's a really great place yeah. to, to, to cut it off there. So I thank you. Is there anything else you want to add to before we, before we wrap up in any resources that, uh, uh, that you have that are, that you've made, I can point people to your work. Um, like I said, I'll definitely get that, um, that link posted on our website. Uh, but is there any the, other there, place we can direct people? That Adoramus article is a compliment. So I think it's in two parts. The one Adoramus article you mentioned, okay. the first part, the second part has a link underneath it. If you're reading the first part. Okay. Um, I know the Magis Center broke it into three parts when, when, when they got a hold of it. Um, mm -hmm. God bless them. I appreciate them helping, helping me as well. Um, but it's an article that complemented an article that came before it that was in the Communio International Review, um, yeah. which was an, an article that was uh, I'm trying to remember the name of it. <laughs> you sent it, it to called, me. Before. I've got it. Oh, I've got it. Somewhere. The Pharaoh, the Pharaoh in the Garden of Eden: A Canonical Reading of Genesis one to three, or something, is what it was called. Okay. But that's where I discuss inside that article. There's a discussion of. <clears throat> The relationship between how um, Abram is recapitulating Adam, mm -hmm. how Abram is recapitulating Adam. And I go back between the intertextuality of the whole story of Abram becoming Abraham and the man of Genesis 2 becoming Adam of Genesis 3. <clears throat> um, and the name changes that happen to the woman who is now named Eve, the one is first named woman, and then later she's named Eve. And oh. you see this happening with Sarai being named Sarah. And it's not until those name changes that a child is born, just like it's not until the name change in which we see man becomes Adam and 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 woman becomes Eve and they have a child. Huh. And so you see God even undo things. So there's a little bit if if people in that discussion that's a fun piece there but again it would just be you know um saint augustine has a lot to say in his literal meaning of genesis the yeah. literal meaning of genesis by saint augustine yeah. it's very thick though yeah <laughs> and so i you know good biblical commentaries from orchards from the 1950s dom orchard dom bernard orchards um i set it up here a catholic commentary on holy scripture um i love commentary by um, Umberto uh, Casuto. Uh, I read old 19th century German commentaries from the Lutherans. I enjoy some of what they have to say. Uh -huh. uh, Kurtz, K-U-R-T-Z. You know, all of you have to, obviously, where, you know, obviously yeah. we read by the analogy of faith as Catholics. Right. But we still can glean, staying faithful to the analogy of faith, we can glean a lot from people who are not going to agree with where we go with, sure. with Scripture. They can really give us insights that we had closed ourselves off from 
just by the way we went in certain trajectories. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this has been really insightful. I, I really appreciate you sitting down with me and, and talking about uh, the book of Genesis. Thank you so much. No, no, that's a grace. It's always a pleasure to speak with you and it's a lot of fun to speak with you. So thanks for having me, period. Well, again, a huge thanks to Dr. Sakonikas for diving into Genesis with me. From here, we will begin the second era of salvation history, the patriarchs. Next week, we'll be introducing the patriarchs era and outlining the stories we'll be focused on next. Remember, there are 12 eras of salvation salvation history. If you've, if you've been following along with the Bible Readers podcast, then congratulations, you've completed the first era. If you'd like to learn more, you can visit us at thebiblereaderspodcast.com, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, and subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for joining us on this episode of the Bible Readers Podcast. We will see you next week.